Well, good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN AM for Friday, February 3rd, 2023. And our top story today, improving college student mental health, what administrators, parents, and students can do. Well, joining me now to discuss this and a lot more is Dr. Marsha Morris. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Florida. She's also the author of The Campus Cure. Marsha, great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Thank you for having me. All right, let's talk about, um, we're going to talk about ways that we can improve the mental health status of college students, but I want to back up a little bit and, and you're knee deep in, I don't know, treating or working with college students. Um, how pervasive is the mental health issues facing our college students today? And Jeff, I actually have, I'm a psychiatrist. I've done clinical work with college students for nearly 30 years. And I've also researched the rates of mental health problems and psychiatric medication use in college students. So from both angles, the clinical and research angle, I can say there's been a very big increase in depression and anxiety in the last 10 years, at least. Um, so, and we did a study that showed a doubling of the rate of depression combined with anxiety in the, from 2013 to 2019, but depression has gone up by almost 100% in the last wow. seven years, it's doubled, and um, anxiety has gone up by 50%. So those depression and anxiety I see as the main problems that young people are experiencing. And it's starting in high school. It's, they're not developing these issues in college. So that's a big societal issue that students are coming in with these problems, but there is hope and there is help. So I don't want anyone to feel hopeless that these problems are going on. There, there are different way, tools and different ways to help people. And a really good point. I mean, uh, let me ask you as a follow-up. I mean, is there any idea as to why this increase in anxiety is increased in some of these challenges at these, you know, they start off as children, obviously, and then they're young adults. Is it um, the, the desire to perform, meaning do, you know, get, you got to get the A, A plus, you got to get the 4.0, you got to be successful in order to get the job. Is it some of it, the peer pressure and the social media that we've talked about on this network before? Oh, I, I think it's a combination of things. We we can't say definitively, sure. but we do know for a fact that perfectionism has increased among college students in the United States. There was a study of students in the United States, Canada, and England, and and those groups, the the pressure to be perfect in college students has increased. And I do think that's a big component. And clearly, social media reinforces that desire to be perfect because people are showing how great their lives are and there's fear of missing out. So that drives it. And so I'm gonna mention one other factor I think is significant, loneliness. We know loneliness has increased in college students. There's less face-to-face -face contact and COVID put that on hyperdrive when students had to isolate. So we have several factors 
you know, causing or contributing to these problems. Although, again, I, we can't definitively say, but that is what I believe is going on. Yeah, it's a confluence of factors, clearly. Um, let me ask you how, and I know you're a clinician, you're also a researcher, how aware, and, and you're not working with every college student, nor are you working with every university or, or higher ed institution, but how aware are administrators and teachers or professors about this when they're, they're I guess, going about their day-to-day -day business of running a university or teaching a class? Are they aware and are they prepared to handle some of these challenges that we're talking about? They are absolutely aware because there, there again, there have been um, um, studies of administrators and professors who describe being very aware of an increase in mental health problems in college students. So um, there is awareness. What what is being done about it? That's the the big question. And many um, universities have increased their services, their mental health services, and they've also worked on preventive measures. And like professors often put the number of the counseling center on their on their um, syllabus, and they often they are now making more exceptions if some student needs to hand in things late to a to a mental health issue. But to me, the biggest issue is there aren't enough there isn't enough treatment both on campus and off campus it's not i'm not saying campus has to do all the treatment but for young adults we need more mental health services we need more community mental health centers and yeah we need better insurance coverage of mental health so again it's a big picture problem but what we ha do have, one solution that I'll mention is a lot of colleges have case managers. So let's say the services are full on campus, the case manager will look at the student's insurance and help them find care off campus. So again, there are solutions. And one solution I would recommend is colleges hire more case managers to connect students. Um, so there's care out there, but it can be hard to access and you have to do multiple phone calls. But I think that, again, we can solve this problem. First, we need more services, but we also need case managers to connect students with services that are there. So, I mean, really, really good points. And I think mental health is something that we've only scratched the tip of the iceberg in terms of treatment. There's always been a stigma or there had previously been a stigma around that and we need to change that. Um, for those parents out there who are getting ready to send their child off to or their children off to a college or university, and they're probably a little nervous, they've read, they're watching the program or they're, they're reading about some of this stuff um, in the paper or the online. Um, let's talk about some ways that uh, we'll start with one and then we'll carry it over into the second segment. But, but what can we do as parents or, um, you know, people that represent the, the parental um, position in the household, what can they do to help their student make the transition and have better mental health? Jeff, this is a, a passion of mine to helping parents help students in college when they're to prevent mental health problems and to address them when they happen. Um, and as you, you, you'll, you've mentioned or will mention, I wrote a book for parents called The Campus Cure, A Parent's Guide to Mental Health and Wellness for College Students. And I have a blog on psychology today on college wellness, and it's geared towards parents. But parents can do a lot. Um, I'm not saying they should be involved in every aspect of a student's life, but I have um, a few suggestions for parents. Um, one, 
One is they should encourage their students to allow them to look at grades when they, you know, each semester, at least at the beginning, maybe the first year or so. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying um, they should look at every test score, but at the end of the semester, they should see how the student is doing. Some students don't want to tell their parents if they're struggling, but that can be an indicator if they're having a mental health issue, if they keep failing classes. Or it could be an inter indicator they need more academic help on campus and they need to connect to resources. So believe it or not, checking the end of semester grades is important. And if the student does have a lot of serious mental health issues, they should um, both make, help, help the student connect with resources, see what's on campus, encourage them to connect. And if there's nothing on campus, encourage them to connect off campus. And if it, again, if it's pretty severe, then they should encourage their student to sign a release of information form so that there can be some communication with the provider, the therapist or psychiatrist. Again, I don't do this with every patient, but for patients who've been in the hospital or have some problems with you know, suicidal behaviors, it can help to involve the parents. So those are kind of two kind of simple suggestions, but in general, if parents can teach their kids that sometimes mental health problems develop, it's okay to um, take a, to seek help. There, there are three things, teach, talk, tell, and take action. That's, that's my mnemonic, but teach them that mental health problems exist. Don't be embarrassed, seek help, tell us, tell the, you know, get help on campus. Um, tell them, you know, um, they can call you anytime. That's especially important in freshman year. Um, teach, talk, um, talk with them on a regular basis. I know a lot of students are texting their parents, but some students are not in touch with their parents. So there's yeah. gotta be some form of regular contact, that yeah. especially freshman year. And take action if you think a crisis is going on. If something you're worried about your child's safety, call the university, have the RA check on them, or even go visit them if you're really concerned. So teach, talk, tell, take action. But so parents, I don't want parents to feel helpless when their kids go to college. They, they still have a really important role in their, their children's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Marsha, I need to take a very... A quick break and when we come back we'll talk more about some tips for parents and also some tips for college students you've got to get the energy going you're going to want to stay tuned right here on brn am imagine a new television network that will make you richer healthier and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy.
featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Tax audits, tax liens, wage garnishments. Every day we hear stories like this about good folks who are simply struggling to pay their bills. Each of them are living a frightening IRS tax nightmare and they are afraid it will destroy their lives. I'm a divorced single mom and my ex-husband left me and the kids with a lot of unpaid bills, including unpaid taxes. I was really starting to show my stress on my kids because the IRS had sent me a letter demanding a huge payment from me. I couldn't afford it. So then the IRS was threatening to garnish my wages. I'm already living paycheck to paycheck. That would have put me over the edge financially. It truly seemed hopeless, but then a friend at work told her to call the tax relief line. The people at the tax relief line, they told me about something called innocent spouse relief. They worked it out so that all of the taxes from my ex are not my problem. I don't know how that works and, and I don't care. All I care about is that I don't owe the IRS a dime and they are not going to take my paycheck. Even if it seems hopeless, you should call the number on your screen right now. There is absolutely no cost for the call or the consultation. You are under no obligation. If you are worried that the IRS could garnish your wages, seize your assets, even take your home, call us right now. The tax relief line is here to help you. Now you have a knowledgeable, professional team of tax experts that are ready to negotiate with the IRS and fight for you to save you money. The Tax Relief Line's professionals have successfully negotiated thousands of cases, reducing and sometimes even eliminating the tax debt for their clients. It's very easy to get started. Simply call the number on your screen right now. You don't have to live in fear anymore. The call and the consultation are free. Welcome back. We're joined this morning by Dr. Marsha Morris of University of Florida and also the author of The Campus Cure. Marsha, thanks so much for staying with us this morning. I'm so glad to be here talking yeah, about this, this really yeah, important topic. Uh, we, you know, this is an important topic for us. I think it's an important topic for parents and, and students, and we need to get our arms around this if we can. Um, you, you mentioned what parents can do, and I, and I wonder, how do you balance being defined as a helicopter parent, someone that's always hovering around their child, versus, um, you know, someone who lets their child make mistakes. I mean, you know, my mother, I, I'm a, not anywhere near college age. My mother always said, got to let you fall down a little bit and get back up. So how do you balance that? Because you want your child to do well, but at the same time, you want to give them a little leeway too. Absolutely. And you, the one goal of a student going to college is to develop those skills of independence and self-reliance. It's, it's, I think the issue is knowing when to hover because as I was talking about in the last segment, if a student is having a crisis, that that's a time to hover um, and be more involved. 
But if a student, um, you know, is pretty high functioning and hasn't had a lot of mental health issues, I think it's good for a parent to step back and, um, you know, like you said, allow them to fail. They might get a, an F in school um, and, and that's okay. That Then they realize, okay, that subject may not be for me. I think what parents can do is really have a dialogue with their students about what involvement is helpful. In other words, I don't think parents should force these issues, like say, I must do this and that. It's really a dialogue. I know college can be really stressful when things start out. I, I'd love to be, I want to make sure I'm available to you and, you know, and as you're adjusting and then again, work out a time to stay in touch and how that's going to work. Go to freshman weekend. Most, most schools uh, used to have freshman parents weekend and we'll, again, now that COVID isn't, you know, as, as prevalent. So yeah. um, I do think, so I don't, I, yes, I don't want the parent, unless there has been a recent psychiatric hospitalization, I don't think parents need to call every day, but if some, again, if someone's in crisis, it's a time to check in and, but yeah. then pull back as things get better. And, um, right. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing parents can do one way I don't want them to helicopter is telling the students what to major in, because I, I think it's fine for parents to say, oh, I think you'd love this, you know, to give suggestions. But what I see sometimes, which can be stressful for students, if a parent says, I want, you've got to make, do this major and follow this career path. And that's not a good thing because getting that four-year degree really does increase your um, earning power. It doesn't have to be in one field or another. So in that sense, I'd like parents to back off a bit and encourage their students to find what they love and what they'll be successful in. Really good advice. Let's talk about some of the tools and how do you balance uh, therapy versus prescribing a, a drug to help with anxiety or depression or going about um, exercise? I mean, how do you, how do you as, a, as a clinician, how do you work with a parent and a student to figure out what works? I would imagine it's on a case by case basis. It absolutely. A lot of this depends on, let's, I'll give, talk about depression as an example. It depends on the level of depression and there are different ways to rate like the, the level of severity. So if it's a mild depression, the student might not need any med, well, they wouldn't need any medicine, that's definite. They might do well with exercise like yoga and running, meditation, that actually might be enough to help them with their symptoms. And also maybe getting, going to a peer support group on campus where you talk with other students, or you, they might go to group therapy on campus. They may not even need individual therapy. Um, so, and so then when you hit moderate, let's say moderate depression where people are starting to have trouble functioning and get into class, then you can do therapy, individual therapy, medication, or both. But I'm a big proponent of therapy and trying that always, that will tend to reduce the amount of medication needed. But if depression gets severe, then that's where I would recommend medication. And the good news about medication is people don't necessarily have to stay on it forever. It, and it, in other words, 
for a first time depression, you might keep someone on it. I know this sounds like a long time, but let's say nine months, that's the recommendation, and then you taper them off. And so I've had patients be on medicine for a year or two, and then we taper them off and they're fine. So you're, it's, so in other words, there are so many tools, but whether you have mild, moderate or severe depression, I think exercise is very important. I wrote a blog about this and it's been shown to reduce all kinds of exercise, running, yoga, um, and um, being out, group exercise is great, being out in nature is great, but exercise reduces depression and anxiety. It may not cure it in people with more severe depression, but it's going to help. And, it, and then even eating well, there's something called the Mediterranean diet that has been shown to reduce depressive symptoms. Um, so there, there's, there are things people can do to really help themselves. There are multiple tools we can use. And, and that's why it's important to talk to a clinician and also health services at the university to get the right path. Last question, the college students, or myself included, are notorious for not sleeping. How important is, you know, you, you mentioned the exercise, you mentioned the diet, you mentioned maybe taking some prescription drugs if you're at, at a crisis point or you need that to reduce the anxiety. How important is maybe forgoing the diner, the late night study, and getting six to eight hours sleep, even if you're a 20 year old college student, because they think they're invincible. I'm so glad you asked that question because I have a blog called, uh, well, in my Psychology Today blog, I have a um, one blog on sleep, it's called Feast on Sleep. <laughs> because that is such, I, I, I should have mentioned that because that is so important. Um, sleep, it is important to get adequate sleep to reduce depression and anxiety. Um, students are notorious and in our society, we're all, the, we all don't, often we don't get enough sleep. We're a very fast paced society, but we need to prioritize it. And the ideal sleep is seven to eight hours. Some, some people need less, some people need more. But getting and getting sleep is essential for our mood, our function. It's important for our immune system. Um, and I've learned something as I was writing the blog that when we're asleep, our brain is literally it, it is um, we have a glymphatic a drainage system. It's like the lymphatic drainage system, but there's um, liquid kind of cleaning our brains at night and washing away toxins. And it happens during sleep. So um, we've got to allow that time to, there's like really biological restoration as we sleep and there's psychological restoration. We just feel better when we sleep. Sometimes we process emotions and dreams. So um, yeah, in terms of both preventing depression and anxiety as well as treating it, it's important to sleep. But I think about 50% of college students get those seven to eight hours a night. Oh, and there was a study of MIT students that showed students who got adequate sleep did better in school. So that is another argument for encouraging college students to sleep. Yeah, and it's about, yeah, and it's about having the right habits when you leave college too, because you want to get that career off in the right, on the right uh, foot. Well, Marsha, we're going to have to leave it there. Really great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to having you back on the program again very soon. Thank you so much. That wraps up this episode of BRNAM. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to. 
Drop us a line and don't forget for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more all in one place. Check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content? We'll visit our website and of course, all of our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of Secure Saturday. We'll have a very special guest and then we'll take a look back at some of our best segments for the week. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving. And don't forget, Roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio-only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device.